One year before his death in 1780, the great Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter to a dear friend of his in France. He wrote this letter to one Jean-Baptiste Leroy concerning his new nation and its new constitution. In this letter, he writes these infamous words. And I quote, Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Another great philosopher who's a bit close to our time, the great M.G. Scott, spoke of something similar when grieving over the loss of his former employee. He talks about death and what to do after, speaking about his employees, saying this. There are five stages to grief, which are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And right now, out there, speaking of his employees, they are all denying the fact that they are sad, and that's hard, and it's making them all angry. And it's my job to get them all the way through to acceptance. And if not acceptance, then just depression. If I can get them depressed, I'll have done my job. Yes, the great M.G. Scott is none other than Michael Gary Scott uh, from The Office. But though I fully admit this is comical and this is for ad flavor, I don't think this is actually a stretch to say this is kind of what the, the preacher intends for us this morning. He's not trying to give you all the answers. He's not trying to get you all the way through to acceptance and recognition and worship. He is simply getting you depressed. That is his job this morning. He wants to present the facts about death and life as they are. And that's where he wants us to go this morning. He wants us to think about death. He wants us to dwell on it and not deviate from it. He's going to hold our heads underwater just long enough for us to feel like we're going to pass out. And then he's going to wait a few more seconds. And then he's going to let us up for a breath of air. He's going to stare death in the face and not blink. He's going to give us all the facts with none of the explanations. This is the preacher's intent this morning. Knowing this, we're not going to answer all the questions that you may have about this text this morning. Though you may want answers, the preacher of our text is not willing to divulge them to you. He is wanting to share the facts and leave the rest to God. I may not answer every question you have from the text in my sermon, but... I would love to get lunch or coffee or a drink and talk about these things. And if we're being honest, I think that's kind of what Koheleth, the preacher, would want of us anyway. Verse one of our text this morning gives us a bit of a preamble to his main idea of this action. The preacher of our text is communicating the conclusion that he has come to about mankind and their life. He says all of their deeds are in the hands of God and we do not know what will come of any of them. All of our deeds are in the hand of God and we don't know what any of them mean. This is where the preacher starts. This is where he's going to keep us for the bulk of our text. And this is where he's going to end. That all of our deeds are known to God, to God alone. Within the body of our text this morning, we're going to see three unrelenting and uncompromising truths. One, death does not discriminate. That'll be verses two through six. Number two, love makes life a luxury. That's going to be verses 7 through 10. And then number 3, verses 11 and 12, life is unpredictable. Life is unpredictable. So, let's dive into the bulk and the body of what he has to say to us this morning. Let's turn our attention to the first bulk of it with verses 2 and 3. We see here that the preacher is being exhaustively and depressingly clear in his first few words. It is the same for all. 
If you look there in verse two, it is the same for all since the same events happen to the righteous and to the wicked. He will go on to list all different kinds of polarities of people, the good and the bad, the one who sacrifices, the one who doesn't sacrifice, the one who makes an oath and doesn't make an oath. And he says, it's the same for all. The good man is going to die the same way that a bad man will. This should not come as a surprise to us. We've seen people in and around our church. Death is a reality that we are forced to always stare in the face. We are are not the first generation on this planet to think that death is scary or to think that we don't want to die. This is a truth and a reality that mankind has struggled with from the very first moment. We have seen death plague us, even in and around the people and the families of Redemption Baptist Church, we've seen death recently wreak havoc on our hearts and minds and people. Our families have died. Our friends have died. People that we've shared the gospel with that have come to our services have died. Can we just be honest for a moment? It's kind of terrible. Death is objectively painful. It hurts is directly linked to mankind's disobedience. We see in Genesis 3, death is the result of us thinking that we know better than God. We are justly condemned to death. Death is a sentence that is carried out by God because of our own sin. And it should make us feel a sense of pain and grief. We should feel death. That's what the preacher is getting at in these verses. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. When we lose a loved one, there is a sort of inexplicable sorrow and hurt that can overtake us if we do not take care to watch ourselves. C.S. Lewis, speaking about this in his book, A Grief Observed, says that the death of a, of a beloved is an amputation. It cuts off a part of who you are. It hurts and cuts deep. Anyone who has lost someone truly close to them can relate to the same feeling. Death hurts, and it's supposed to. It is a consequence from us rebelling against a holy, perfect, immortal God. The preacher here is readily admitting that this is true and yet staring this truth in the face unrelentingly. The single biggest thing that mankind has been running to try to avoid throughout their existence is death. I mean, it's, it, it taints everything from the searching for the elixir of life, right? This philosopher's stone that, that uh, was rumored to give one everlasting life or the fountain of youth in Florida. There are all of these, these, these voyages to find the answer to how can we not die or put into our context, how can we continue to advance science in such a way to prolong our life here on this miserable earth as long as we possibly can? We put everything into ending cancer. We put everything into curing heart disease, to ending diabetes. Everything we have, all of our resources are devoted, our intellect, resources, and effort are devoted to prolonging our existence on this earth and to put off death for as long as we can. The preacher even says this is a worthy endeavor because he says in verse three, look here, this is an evil. The reality that the good man and the bad man and the sinner and the saint All of them, the same happens to them. This is an evil. The reality of death is evil. This is not explicitly speaking in terms of morality. So when this word is used here in this text in the Hebrew, it's not speaking of right and wrong or good and evil based on God's law. This is an objectively could be translated as a bad thing. 
Death kind of is terrible, right? It's kind of inconvenient, right? It is not a good thing. It is a bad thing. Death is a bad thing. And then he has, he, he adds, oh yeah, not only is, is death an objectively discouraging thing, but so is mankind. We're the worst. Our hearts are wicked. Our children's hearts are wicked. We are consumed with evil and madness, he goes on to say in verses three. Remember how the preacher, the preacher has used madness up to this point. Madness is the living in such a, a way that completely rejects and goes in contrast to God's explicit law. We are children of madness. We have madness in our hearts while we live. And after we live, we go to be with the dead. What does this kind of sound like to you? What does, we have madness, we rejected God's law, we are wicked and evil. What does this sound like to you? It sounds like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.11, none is righteous, no, not one. We live on this earth as sinners and then we die. This is the reality. This is truth. Now, look with me at verses four through six. Verse four, but he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Verse four almost sounds encouraging, right? It almost sounds encouraging. He's like, oh, he's talking about hope. We're gonna get some hope. We're gonna get a, just those brief glimmers of the good things that the preacher has been giving to us up to this point. He'll stop every now and then and he'll give us a little nugget of hope to cling on to and then he'll depress us again. That's not what he's doing here. He's not lifting our head up yet. This is the point where we think we're about to pass out underwater and die. And he's just going to hold it a couple seconds longer. The preacher is trying to communicate, as we'll go on to read after that, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. He's going to go on to expound upon this. He says, the preacher is trying to communicate the only reason that being alive is better than being dead is that the living know they're going to die. The, the lion is the literal king of the animal world in their eyes. They see the lion and they say, nothing else out there is going to kill that thing. That is the apex predator, the king of the jungle. That is the most terrifying creature in their known world. And a dog is the exact opposite. They are scavengers. They come and they eat the garbage and, and filth and remains that humans leave behind. They are garbage. And yet he says it is better to be alive and to, to be the lowest of the low than it is to be the, the best, most triumphant, successful lion and be dead. Why? Because the living dog knows eventually that they are going to die. We, though we are living, we know that we are going to die. The dead know nothing. They're dead. We have to remember here why is the preacher bringing this up? Why is he harping on this constantly? Why is he going in and in and in on this reality that death is terrible? We are terrible because we live as if we're, we're dead. And even though we're alive, we're anticipating death, which makes us even more terrible. Why, why is he continuing to go in on this? We have to rem remember that the preacher is propping up this argument and this reality from a worldly perspective. He is not saying, if you have God, this is still your existence. If you follow God's commands and his statutes, this is the way you'll live. Remember what Cole said last week. I loved that he brought this up. The preacher is painting in Ecclesiastes almost the whole, for the entire time. He is preaching a profile. He is painting a portrait of someone in the negative, right? 
as if to examine it almost backwards. See that if left to our own devices, this is our fate. If left to our own sinful tendencies, if we, have, if we are living this life apart from God and his commands, this is the hope we have, none. The, the only hope you have is that you're still alive and not dead yet, but you're gonna die one day and that's the only reason it's better for you. He's painting this in a, a, the negative. He is commuting to us that the only that, that this is what he has seen with his vain eyes. He is zooming out the 30,000 foot picture of his life and everyone else's life that he's ever met. He is simply going to state the facts as he has seen them in his vain existence. The only thing left when we hear this is why? Why is he bringing this up? He says their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun talking about the dead. They have no more lot in this life. They have no more stake at what's going on among the living. The dead are dead and gone. There's no more hope for them. We think this is somehow unfair and unjust for God to let this be true. That the good would die, that at times the bad would live, but eventually the bad also dies just like the good will. That the, the saint would die just as, as quickly or as suddenly as someone who has lost. We think this is unjust. How could God let this be true? So we start to question him, even doubt him and his goodness. Let me just remind you what the preacher is implicitly acknowledging here. God is sovereign over life and death and you are not. Your death, your life is not in your hands. You have the responsibility and the agency to obey God and his commands. You have no idea when the time of death is coming upon you. Remember Ecclesiastes 3, when he said, there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to live and a time to weep and a time to, to mourn and a time to dance. Remember what we said in that week. We are not in control of those times. What we do is respond appropriately or inappropriately to those times. God is in control of the seasons. God is holy he is, the, he is goodness magnified. Remember verse one, their deeds are in the hands of God. He sits in the high heavens and does as he pleases. He is Lord over life and death. No one goes before their time. Can I just say that to you really plainly? There is no, he went too young. She died before her time. That doesn't exist in the reality of God being Lord over life and death. Right. Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed for one, for man to die once. After that comes judgment. Job 14, five, since his days are determined and, his, and the number of his months is with you, speaking to God, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. He none of us will pass the day that God has, has ordained for us to die. None of us will pass that day. Psalm 139.16, your eyes saw me saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Before we even came into existence in this world, God numbered the days of our lives. No matter how much this hurts, no matter how much it is hard for us to grasp and understand, God is in control and he knows and does, he actually does what is best. Our lives are held in the hands of God and they can be gone at a moment's notice. What are we left then to do with our lives? 
What are we left to do with this miserable existence that all of these great giants and successful men, they, they go and they die, just like the peasants will go and die. And they all go to the same place. What do we do with this? Well, unlike the preacher and his kingdom and his people, we have the luxury of living in light of something that they did not. They didn't get to see the Messiah. They hoped for him. They longed for him. They cried out that God would send his redeemer to them. The kinsman redeemer that was long foretold in the Old Testament, even as far back as Genesis 3.15, when it would say that the, the seed of the woman would rise up and crush the head of the serpent. They were hoping for it. They were blindly having faith in God because of what he has told them to do. He, they had faith that he would do this one day. But for you and I, we get to live in light of that Messiah. We know what the Messiah did, right? Bobby Jameson said, though death levels us, Christ leveled death. The death of death was, was present at the death of Christ. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. We've already talked about this, how we have earned for ourselves because of the madness within our hearts, because of the wickedness with which that lies inside the heart of the children of men, because of our wickedness, we have earned with our hands death. This death, the same death that comes to the sinner, the saint, the same death that comes to he who shuns an oath and he who makes an oath, the same death that comes to the good and the bad, we have earned this for ourselves. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have for ourselves earned this death. This thing we cannot escape or outrun, we have justly secured for ourselves. But Jesus came and lived without sin. He is not bound. He did not earn this death for himself. He was not bound to die the death that he did, but he died it anyway in the place of ruined sinners like you and me, in the place of, of people whose hearts are filled with madness, who are wicked and whose children are wicked. He came in and died to secure forever to life in his name those who would confess him as Lord and master over their life. And once again, we understand the gospel and the joy and life and hope that we have in knowing that we belong to Christ. A whole new world opens up when we acknowledge that Christ came and he conquered this thing to death. This, this one thing that no one can escape, Christ escaped it because of his perfection, because of who he was, being perfectly God, perfectly man, fulfilling all the commands of God and then going and dying, offering himself a living sacrifice for the sins of his people, securing once for all time those who would trust in his name and obey him forever. He now gets to rise from the dead because he died a death he didn't deserve. He now gets to rise from the dead. And then do you know what happens? We get to be a part of a resurrection that we didn't deserve. Christ conquered death. The same is true for the wicked and the good. They go to, to death, but only Christ returns and never tastes it again. You might say, Lazarus rose from the dead. Jesus rose other people from the dead, but they went back. They went back to the grave. Lazarus died again. Christ is alive and reigning still. And he is here with us. He is ruling and reigning over the earth. Once we understand this, we now see everything, not as a miserable frivolity, but as a glorious luxury. We get to live this life now, not, in, not like this, not knowing that we're a living dog who's just waiting to die like the lion did. We get to live in light of love, 
This love that Christ has shown us, that moves us on to point number two. Love makes life a luxury. Love makes life a luxury. Acknowledging that God is in control and we are not, knowing that death is coming and there's nothing we can do to avoid it, but trusting in Christ is our only hope in life and death. What then do we do? What then is the response that wisdom should lead us to? Look with me at verses seven through 10. Verse seven, go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Live life like this. This is what the preacher is telling you. The good and the bad, live your life like this. Live life in seeking joy where it may be found. This is the preacher's response. This is his answer, his only answer that he's gonna give us this morning is live life as though you are seeking to find that joy. If you should eat, eat the best tasting hearty food that you can and do it with joy and thankfulness along with others who love you. If you should drink wine, do it merrily. Drink with good friends whom you can share a deep laugh with. If you listen to music, get lost in that music. Dance, sing, play along. Do all that you can to enjoy the rhythms of life. If you read, enjoy the works and the toil of the wordsmiths and find joy there. Learn, find joy in learning. If you build, build with a smile on your face and sawdust in your hair. Work hard. Love the work that you get to put your hands to. If you love, love unconditionally. If you should marry, love your spouse deeply. Enjoy them and don't just tolerate them. If you should not marry, love your family, church, friends, community with a devotion that others are seldom able to express. If you worship, worship in spirit and in truth, counting it all joy to worship the name of Christ. Doug Wilson says it this way. I love what he says in his book, Joy at the End of the Tether. When men understand the futility of earthly existence and they understand in the way Koaleth presents it to us, they are then equipped to enjoy their bread for perhaps the first time. They may consider the redness of, of the wine and laugh over it with a wise and contented joy. They may turn to love their wives, not because physical love is forever, but because rather it is not. In the world of creatures, we may only enjoy what we do not worship. We can enjoy all in this life that God has given us. Why? Because we don't worship it. We worship the God who's given it. We worship the gift giver and not the gift. We worship God for he alone is worthy of praise and honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And the acknowledgement that not everything is eternal and that we should enjoy it all the more while God allows us to is the only conclusion that the preacher comes to here. Work hard, eat and drink and soak up all the great things the Lord has for you here in this life. But remember to do this with holiness, acknowledging God in all your ways, because look here at verse eight. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. This is Old Testament, Old Covenant language that is reserved for the priests. This is reserved for the people of God who have anointed themselves, who have draped themselves in clean, pure garments of white so that they may offer sacrifices on behalf of people to God. These are people who revere and acknowledge the holiness of God. So enjoy all of those things. Enjoy your wine. 
Enjoy your food, enjoy your friends and your music. Do not forsake your first love. Love God, obey his commandments. In the context here, Coleth is saying, enjoy God in all you do, but don't forget that you're to do these things as God has prescribed you to do so. Do not revile yourself. This is our portion in life. Here in, in verse nine, it says, enjoy life with the wife whom you loved all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because this is your portion in life in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Verse nine uses the same word for portion that we saw in verse six when it says share. It's the same word. It's the investment that we put into something hoping to see a return. We get to do all of these things with all of our might now, because in death, we're not gonna do them anymore. At least from his perspective, right? We know that those in Christ will be reunited at the, the wedding su supper of the lamb. We're gonna get to partake of the same sort of uh, feast that we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna be reminded of the blood of the lamb and the broken body of Christ, yet we're gonna do it in glory with a Christ who's actually present with us and not just one that we're reminded of. Don't get it twisted. He is with us here. His spirit dwells among his people. He is with his people. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Behold, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. But at the end of the age, when all is said and done and this earth is consumed with fire, we get to go and be with him face to face. We get to see him. We get to touch the holes in his hand. We get to behold his glorious face. What a good thing death is for those who trust Christ. We are all heading to Sheol, as verse 10 says. In other words, we're all progressing towards death. But the way in which we do so absolutely matters. How you progress towards this inevitability actually matters. You should live in light of where you're going. Heaven, an acknowledgement of heaven now, should prepare us for getting there eventually. The reality that we're gonna go get to spend eternity with God, beholding his face, sitting and eating and loving and worshiping him forever, that should cause an effect on how we live here in this life. For the nihilist or the atheist, the reality of nothing after death is an excuse to live life like nothing really matters. Seek after all your wicked heart desires. That's what they would say. Do what you want, because none of it matters. For example... Sorry, for the disciple of Christ, the reality is very different. The reality of an eternity after death is a cause to live life with the fullness of joy, knowing that the entirety of the radiance of the glory of God is waiting for you at the end of that tether. The anchor of our hope that it talks about in Hebrews, Christ himself, he has anchored us and he will bring us to the end of the tether. But once we get there, that should inform how we get there. So live life, love the things that God has given you, enjoy them deeply with others, obey God's commands, don't make a fool of yourself, and remember to live life now as though you are getting life after death. Let's move on to our last point, verses 11 and 12. Life is unpredictable. Life is unpredictable. Look with me at 11 and 12. Again, I saw that under the sun... The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. The truth is, we have no idea what is going to happen here in this life. We have no idea. 
God is ruler and Lord over life and death, and he is orchestrating all things for, the, for his glory and for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is the reality of God. God is working all things for his glory and for our benefit. We could be the most skilled and successful lion on the face of the earth, and yet we will die and be less than the dogs who continue to draw breath. We like to think that we are masters of our own domain, that we're captains of our own destiny. Can I just be really honest with you? You're not. You are not in control. This is far bigger than you. You are so small to be able to talk about time and space like you control your own destiny. God is so much bigger than that. The race does not always go to the fastest runner. The strong are not always victorious in battle. The smart are not always the most successful. Those with knowledge do not always win the bread. They do not always win the prize. Let's go a little bit closer to home. Just because you're a follower of Christ doesn't mean that your life is going to be easy or comfortable. It's not. God makes you no promises. You have no promises pointed your direction that your life is going to be easier because you follow Christ. You don't. You just don't. You have no promises saying that everything will go well with you because you follow God's law. You do have promises and hope that things will be well with you regardless of what happens. It might not go well with you, but it should always be well with you because you know God, because your hope is not tied to these circumstances, right? Our hope isn't here. If our hope is here, we literally all we have to hope for is what he talks about in verses one through six. It's death. It's that we are alive and we're awaiting death. That's our only hope. But that's not true, is it? That's not true in Christ. You do not know when your time is coming. You will not know. Death will come upon you and it will be a surprise. Even if you get sick and it takes a long time, death is always a surprise to us. Death is always shocking. It's always gonna be painful. With the knowledge of this, how are you choosing to spend your time now? When you die, there are no second chances to obey Christ. There's none. We die, then we see judgment. That's what Hebrews 9 told us. Bobby Jameson also said this in his sermon on this text. He said, you don't know when you will die. So the only wise way to live is to live your life like you are always ready to die. Live your life like you're always ready. You're always ready to go see your maker. This life, this life, uh, we like to say, hey, it's been said in the church for a long time, every gathering of the Lord's people here on this earth is a dress rehearsal for the Lord's day, for the last day. We get to rehearse and practice and, and grow in the things that are only gonna prepare us for when death actually comes for us. So when death comes, even though we're gonna be shocked, it's gonna be scary, right? I'm not saying you're going to embrace death with open arms and that you're always going to be not afraid. We're sinners, right? We are still tainted by sin, but yet you will be ready. Whether you think you are or not, obeying the commands of Christ, living in a manner worthy of the gospel here on this earth is the only way to best prepare for what comes after. Are you ready for that final curtain call? Are you prepared to die and be forgotten? Are you living in such a way that your death 
would not leave a Christ-exalting mark on all those who knew you well? Does the way your life now, does the way you live say anything about what you believe is waiting for you after you die? I'll close with this quote from C.S. Lewis in the same book that I quoted earlier in A Grief Observed, and then we'll pray, we'll rejoice that God has overcome death. Lewis writes, once again in that same book, A Grief Observed, he says, you never know how much you really believe anything until it is truth or falsehood, until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? Do you trust in the anchor of our hope, both in life and death, or is life truly meaningless? Will you pray with me? God, we are so thankful that we have hope in life and in death, that the reality for your people is that death is not the end that death is the next step into an eternity of glorifying, worshiping, and beholding your glory. Thank you for your people that we get to celebrate this with. Now, as we continue to sing praises to your name, we ask that you would be with us. God, if anything is unclear, would you make it clear? If there is any questions that still remain in our minds about death, about grieving, about life, and about liberty, and about the things we get to enjoy here on this earth, would you make it clear? Would you open our conversations? Would you open our schedules to be willing to talk and sit with one another? For we know the preacher is one who enjoys a good conversation. May you make us into people who do the same. But above all, God, we ask that you make us aware that this life, it's short, it is a vapor, it is a vanity, and it is fleeting. It is like trying to catch smoke. We ask God that you would make us ready for when that vapor finally goes out. Prepare our hearts for our inevitable death and bring us to the reality that that's actually a joy. Next to salvation, death can be the greatest thing you've ever given your people because you get to take them home to be with you. I know how we look forward to that day. Remind us to live now in light of eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand and sing with us?